If you're interested in giving your child the gift of speaking more than one language, join me for this conversation with a speech and language specialist. I talk with Mary Pat O'Malley from the National University of Ireland about the latest linguistics research, our experiences with our own multilingual children, and practical tips for raising bilingual kids. Come get the lowdown on the role of community, personal relationships, and storytelling in fostering language acquisition. Welcome to the Taranga Tribune, where the Senegalese concept of welcoming all people with openness and generosity guides our exploration of the world. I am Micah Reinch Sinclair, world traveler, digital nomad, development worker, and world schooling parent of three young global citizens. Taranga Tribune Travel Talks bring the world to you so that you can enrich your perspective, appreciation, and engagement of our common humanity all around the globe. Today, I have the privilege of talking with Mary Pat O'Malley, who is a linguist, a speech and language therapist, a lecturer, and the director of undergraduate program in speech and language therapy at the National University of Ireland in Galway. Welcome, Mary Pat. Thanks a million for having me, Mike. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have the chance to compare notes with you today on raising bilingual children and to have you share with the Taranga Tribune audience some of the current research, evidence, and best practices around raising bilingual or multilingual kids. And as you know, and some of our listeners know, I'm coming to this topic with a lot of personal experience. I have an undergraduate degree in linguistics, and I am the mother of three children who are fully bilingual in English and French, even though my husband and I are native English speakers. So I'm excited to dig into this topic with you today and hear some of the latest evidence. Great. In addition to your university research and teaching, you have a really interesting website called Talk Nua that, among other things, offers support to bilingual families, multilingual families, and their children. And in particular, you address the needs of families where there is concern about speech and language development. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do, Mary Pat? Sure. Thanks a million. So, yeah, because I'm a speech and language therapist, like I have a particular interest in supporting multilingual families where there is a concern about the child's speech and language development. And unfortunately, even though like more people in the world speak two or more languages than there are monolingual people, there are still a lot of myths and misunderstandings out there about raising multilingual children in general and in particular where um, there is a, a concern about speech and language. So I started the website then, Talk Nua. Nua is the Irish word for new. Um, and I wanted it to kind of bring like research to uh, parents in particular to empower them to be able to push back against incorrect advice from healthcare professionals about raising multilingual children where they may be slow to talk or maybe where they have um, what's called a developmental language disorder um, and to kind of really support them in that journey. And because the, kind of, the bottom line really is, from my point of view, if a family need two or three or more languages in order for their child to kind of participate fully in all aspects of their lives, then that's what they need. And it's the job of the speech and language therapist to support those children where there are difficulties um, to access all of their languages. 
So maybe to start, it would be helpful for you to just define bilingualism or multilingualism or the two and give us a sense of what we mean when we when we use those terms. Sure. And I think a key kind of term really when it comes to this area is inconsistency and variation. There are lots of different kind of definitions. Um, And my preferred kind of definition really is the kind of idea of where a child needs two or more languages in order to participate fully in all of the um, areas of their life. And why I like that definition is it's based on the idea of need and not proficiency. So if let's say I'm a parent and a speech and language therapist or a pediatrician is saying to me, well, you know, you need to drop one of the languages. If my definition is based on need, I can say, well, my child needs two languages. So that's what they need. And it's very difficult for the health professional to argue against that. Um, In relation to kind of definitions about proficiency, so it doesn't have to mean fluent. Like we need to think about speaking, listening, reading, and writing as the different kind of modalities of language. So to give a kind of a practical example, I was raised through English. Um, So English in terms of speaking, listening, reading, and writing, I can operate at a high level in all of those. And then I also speak Irish, but my I have a real um, like, how would I say, uneven profile in my Irish. So my comprehension for conversational level Irish is quite good. My expression conversationally wouldn't be as good. Mm-hmm. I would rarely write anything in Irish because my grammar just isn't great. And then I would really read a lot in Irish because I find it too. I'm too slow. So mm-hmm. a very that's very typical of um children and people who are bilingual or multilingual is this kind of uneven profile across those four domains Mm -hmm. not a problem uh, because again it comes back to what you need now I could improve my proficiency in Irish if I wanted to but I'm not motivated enough I like to converse (laughs) in Irish Uh um, and I like to watch things in Irish on Irish language tv for example with the aid of the subtitles But I'm kind of that uneven profile is quite um, typical for multilingual children. Yeah. So you're what you're saying is that there's a wide variation in terms of uh, bilingualism and multilingualism. But I like this concept of need that um, that it's about the need to communicate, of course. Absolutely. And like you can, if you want, of course, aim for balance. But I do think balance is kind of an illusion, really, because we use our different languages for different purposes in different places with different people. So that variation is just inherent in being multilingual because of how language operates and how we use language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, you work a lot with families that are bilingual and have a clear need to use more than one language. Mm-hmm. And then you also work with families to address speech issues like delays or stuttering. Mm-hmm. And um, I reached out to a community of world schooling families that I've been a part of for more than seven years now on Facebook, actually, to invite some questions about raising bilingual kids. And and I want to sprinkle a number of those questions throughout our discussion today. And I think this would maybe be a good place, a good juncture to raise a question that a couple of listeners posed about bilingualism for kids with developmental language delays and diagnoses like autism, dyslexia, Down syndrome, and others. 
there's a lot of concern and confusion and debate, I think, about such children learning more than one language. And I know that's a specialty of yours. What can you tell us about the latest research and recommendations around this? Sure, it's such an interesting you know, question. And essentially, the bottom line is that well, there are large gaps in the research, but what research is there says that basically children who are autistic or who have Down syndrome can and do become bilingual. Now, we're not talking again like fluent because fluency or that high level of proficiency isn't necessarily the aim for everyone in general anyway. Um, but the again, it comes back to if they need um, two languages that's what they need and that's what we mm-hmm. must support. So, for example, um, I've you know, an- anecdotally heard stories of situations where, let's say, a child um, is going to school in a particular area with their siblings. And this would be in Ireland. Now, so a Gaeltuk area where Irish is the language of, the, of daily life and it's the community language. And the mm-hmm. recommendation would have been given to the family to send the child who had a language difficulty to an English language school out of the local area which doesn't actually isn't supported by the research. And even if you didn't know anything about the research, that recommendation doesn't make any sense. Because because the child's going to use the, the Irish language in daily life. Exactly. And you are now actually removing them from their local community. And mm-hmm. like when and then you're risking the loss of Irish then. So you're making them even more compromised in a way because you've taken them out of their environment where their siblings go to school where their peers are so mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense you know but you're right there is a lot of kind of misunderstanding about that um and on the website talk Nua, i do have two free ebooks one for parents of children with down syndrome and one for parents of uh, autistic children about what the current research is around speaking two or more languages and being autistic or um, having down syndrome So the bottom line is that you do not recommend limiting languages or cutting out a language in in those cases. Absolutely not. And also, I think it's important for parents to be aware that the professional associations for speech and language therapists all say we should never advise families to drop a language. Mm -hmm. So -hmm. there's no evidence to support that advice. And it's based on a faulty kind of understanding about the nature of multilingualism, the purpose of language for communication and the global kind of profile where more people speak two or more languages than Mm -hmm. are monolingual. That it's quite common all around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And even for children without developmental delays, there have been some concerns and maybe um, they persist about uh, bilingual families seeing a delay in their children's production of speech, um, perhaps because they're exposed to two languages. And in my experience with our three children um, who were raised bilingual, there that was not the case at all. In fact, I saw them speak as soon as or earlier than their peers. Absolutely. And again, like there's no evidence to support this kind of common sense idea that things will be slower because two is more than one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I think the, the challenge really from, let's say, the speech and language therapy point of view is that Uh, early language development in general there's huge individual variation Mm -hmm. Um, so the range of what's considered kind of typical is quite broad so if there is a concern about a child not talking it's difficult for us to kind of work out like what's in the range of 
normal or typical developments and what's kind of veering towards delayed, but it's definitely not speaking to more languages that causes it. Mm-hmm. And more important, I would say, nearly than, let's say, are they talking yet, is are they communicating? Yes. Because before the first words ever ap- appear, you want to see intention to communicate in the child. And that might be like pointing, looking at something to draw your attention to it, maybe vocalizing. But talking happens when you consider that babies start to hear it about 26 weeks in utero. And mm-hmm. when they're born, they can distinguish between the languages they've been exposed to. They're quite old by the time right. they're 12 months from, you know, in terms of all the foundational work that has happened. Right. So you you talk on your website also about this passion for facilitating communication, no matter how it is, um, yes. how it is done and the importance of understanding children's perspectives so that we can communicate more compassionately with them. Mm, mm. And that really resonated with me because I have a passion for communicating with people and I love um, learning languages and cultures and communicating with people all over the world, um, partly to build a shared understanding and to have compassion for other humans. Mm -hmm. And this is actually one of the reasons that my husband and I decided to world school our children and also to raise them bilingual. And so getting away maybe a little bit from the need here to look at a broader, um, maybe a broader need, if I could frame it that way, that I see for opening opportunities for our children and enabling them to relate to a broader world. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's so interesting because like one thing that helps biling- the language development in bilingual children with or without kind of additional needs is to talk about similarities and differences between the languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say, for example, in Irish, the verb comes first in the sentence, whereas in English, it tends to be the subject. And you really strengthen like children's language development by having those conversations and making those observations about, oh, that's how you say it in this you know, language and this is how you say it in the other language. And then broadening it out in terms of like cultural differences around even things like, you know, greetings. And do you like shake hands? Do you just say something? Is a smile right. to be part of the greeting? All of that so that... And I agree that just kind of opens your mind, I suppose, to there being different perspectives. Right. And different yeah. And, things. and you kind of, you can kind of get into psycholinguistics, which I find to be a really interesting, mm-hmm. um, interesting area of study too. Um, one of the examples that I love from my experience is in Senegal, um, the Wolof language has a word for um, believe and it's the same word, the exact same word as to close your eyes. And it's gum in Wolof. And I think it's just really interesting to look at um, how that, how, how language affects the way we look at the world. And then to have the opportunity to see that from different language perspectives and thus cultural perspectives can be a really valuable gift. Oh, I agree. And I think it's kind of part of the the journey of challenging like the monolingual mindset Mm -hmm. and going, oh, there's different ways to say things and there are different ways to view things and how like poetic language can be like if you think of that example 
to believe and to close your eyes. Isn't that just really interesting, like from uh-huh. a kind of philosophical point of view? Because exactly. if you attach to a belief, have you not then closed your eyes to other potential beliefs? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I think those conversations are great to have at any age, really. Yeah. Um, so tell tell me, is there evidence that you can share about the benefits of being bilingual from a young age? So, yeah, I think that's a very interesting question in a way. And I, I would kind of tend to shy away from discussions mm-hmm. about kind of pros and cons, because, again, I wonder if the pros and cons kind of um, stance comes from the monolingual mindset, because if it's just the way a fact of your life that you need two or three or more, then that's just the way it is. Um, there are gaps in the evidence and there's kind of because people define things differently and they measure things differently. So there is some research to show, for example, that where you have adolescents who have maintained even understanding of the home language, that they are less likely to engage in risky behavior as adolescents Mm. because they have closer kind of uh, connections with their family um, and that they have better relationships with their families where they even maintain comprehension. And that's, I think that research that is, is from really areas. Interesting. Isn't it? It's from where? where? Sorry, the research. It's from, um, I'd have to go back now and look. I mean, can get the, the reference for you, but maybe migrant communities where there's the risk mm-hmm. of like dissociating from your home language and culture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's really important. And then there, there is research about, you know, cognitive advantages. But a lot of the research, you know, is conducted kind of their experiments that are conducted not in real world settings. So let's say there were co- processing costs, because if you speak two languages, they're both on at the same time. And your job and the task is to keep the one that's not the target suppressed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that might mean that on a task, you are slower to name a picture or a series of pictures. But then you think in the real world, does that really matter? That you took more time to Yeah, so it? what your mm-hmm. response time is a bit slower in an experiment. Yeah. You know how, do, you, do you know what I'm saying about kind yes. of the, the, yeah. And obviously in terms of like practically speaking without research, we say necessary to back it up. But if you can operate well in two or more, then it does open up more opportunities for you job-wise than if you can only speak one. So you know what I mean? But the overall, the research is varied um, in terms of what it has found. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. So you were raised bilingual in English No, I was Irish. raised monolingual. As okay. in, yeah, my, well, my mother was raised bilingually, Irish and English. Mm-hmm. And her mother was Irish, an Irish only speaker um, and became the postmistress because to get the postmistress job, you had to speak Irish and her husband to be only spoke English. Uh-huh. So it might have been a marriage of convenience to begin with. Um, and the, But I was always kind of aware of Irish growing up because my mother could only do her mental arithmetic in Irish. Okay. And when so she would be helping my, yeah, myself and my sister with our homework, we used to love hearing her, like, you know, uh, talking Irish. And then in school in Ireland, you see, you learn Irish as part of the curriculum. So I was mm-hmm. always interested. I always liked it. Okay. Um, and that's actually an interesting question, though, uh, Mike, about how people see themselves as bilingual or not. And in so, like in Europe, supposedly, we tend to have like 
high expectations. So I would ask the speech and language therapy students like who's here is bilingual and most of them would say, oh, they're not, because we kind of tend to equate bilingual with fluent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas in other places, they might say, oh, yeah, I am. Um, even though they're not necessarily fluent in the second one. Do you know what I mean? Yes, because they can get anything across, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you and I are both examples of parents who are raising bilingual children, even though we ourselves were raised monolingual. Exactly. Um, And so in my case, I studied linguistics and I loved learning languages. So my husband and I wanted to raise our children bilingual in order to open them up to a wider worldview and hopefully facilitate their learning of other languages down the road. And Mm -hmm. we raised our children using the one person, one language approach, um, Mm -hmm. OPAL, that I know you're well familiar with. Um, And so in this case, my husband communicates only in, in English with our children and I communicate only in French with them. And then we also have been very fortunate to be able to live with our children, both in the U.S., where French was the so-called minority language, and also in France, where English is the minority language, of course. So our kids are fully bilingual in both languages, and I'm a strong proponent of OPAL. It's worked really well for our family. But tell us about your choice to raise your child bilingual as a, a monolingual person. And what does the evidence say about the the best approach to doing that? Sure. So I felt really that with my daughter, like I couldn't do baby talk in Irish. Uh So I, I just didn't have the vocabulary. So she really was monolingual up until, let's say, around a year. And then I was like, OK, I can manage single word level uh-huh. <laughs> and naturally in Irish. So we'd have, you know, kind of a simple children's books and vocabulary and this, that and the other. Mm-hmm. And then um, we decided really, of course, when you decide where you're going to send your child to school, there are lots of factors. But one factor was the school was very close by and it had a good reputation and the it was an Irish language medium school. And I thought, well, that would actually be good for her, like in terms of stimulating um, to actually be educated through in a language that isn't your first language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, so that, so we don't speak Irish at home and it's interesting, like, even though she's now like in heading into the last year of primary school, she does no love for Irish, uh, even though she's very good at it. She doesn't Um, have a love for it. No. Okay. Uh, who knows it may, that may change over time but no doesn't like love it whereas I do love like I really like it and mm-hmm. I'd like to speak more of it at home but she isn't kind of interested in communicating with me in Irish and that's okay you know that doesn't mm-hmm. bother me yeah so then yeah so then during lockdown she because and then of course I remember I had French I had flashcards of first words in French as well and we watched things like Peppa Pig in Italian sometimes and we watched it in French as well so she was kind of having those metalinguistic kind of conversations as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh look that's how they say it there or whatever Mm -hmm. and then during lockdown she decided to learn Russian and for me it was just an example of where when a child is motivated and interested and she just like ran with it and we were happy to support her. I mean, I've, I've got about five words now myself (laughs) from the exposure, but you know, but so she really was very motivated and she used Duolingo and there were lots of videos on, on YouTube. So obviously she was older at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. So to go back to your, 
the question then about the the best ways i think it's kind of like you know 50 ways to leave your lover like <laughs> it depends on your situation so with the one person one language my philosophy really is whatever works for you yeah okay you know is the way i and with the one person one language i think if that works for your situation fantastic and if it doesn't work for your situation don't stress out because mm-hmm. the Depending on where you are, the downside of the one person, one language is about the support for the minority language. Mm-hmm. So let's say if you in Ireland, a kind of a, a common situation would be where you'd have one parent speaks English and the other person speaks Polish, let's say, for example. Mm-hmm. And like English isn't in danger. English is everywhere. But Polish is because once a child starts at school, the minority or the home language is in danger of kind of incomplete acquisition or backsliding or attrition or plateauing. So the issue isn't really about learning English. It's more about like, can you really support the home language? And one way to do that would be for the English speaking parent to learn Polish because mm-hmm. that would communicate this is valued. Right. Right. You know? I, yeah, I think that's interesting. I know yeah. in, in our case, in supporting the minority language, a, a really important aspect has been community. So, yes. for example, when we were in California, um, where French was the minority language, we I connected with other families who spoke French and we organized a weekly playgroup so that mm-hmm. so that our kids could make friendships in French um, and also hear adults speaking in that minority language and, and be exposed to more vocabulary and um, other topics than might come up in family life. Absolutely. And I think that's a key issue is about the community. And can you give the, can you facilitate opportunities for the child to communicate meaningfully mm-hmm. in let's say the, the minority language um so i would i'm not let's say i'm not a fan of one person one language but i'm a fan of whatever works for you so like you know because i think as well i find it personally hard to be consistent mm-hmm. so like i and also the idea of you know the mixing and switching between languages doesn't bother me mm-hmm. like i think it's actually really interesting and I think you one a thing that children have to learn is the rules of when it's okay to mix and switch. And for example, like when I started going to the Irish class, um, I go to an Irish class once a week in the university because I'm a speech and language therapist, I'm just driven to communicate. So I would plug any gap in my Irish with English mm-hmm. and gradually I noticed nobody else was doing it. Mm-hmm. Like everyone else was staying in Irish. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, hmm, what am I going to do now? So I resolved to kind of <laughs> to try and stay more in Irish and not take the easy option out of just popping in. Yeah. In English. I try to do that also. I challenge myself to do that in, in French. Um, and I'm sure you're aware of research that shows um, the benefits in later life of being able to stay in a, a, a specific language and stay in that channel that it supposedly helps with um, dementia and Alzheimer's, um, just exercising that muscle to keep in one channel. Oh, right. I know I'm not, I'm familiar with some research that shows about, you know, the onset of dementia being five years later 
um, where the person has be, is bilingual, but I'm not like totally au fait with the kind of the recent research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm sure there is research too about, let's say, where somebody has had a stroke and then um, the recovery afterwards if they speak two languages mm. or more. But I wouldn't be hugely, because my focus really is with um, children. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to share also with some of our listeners, because this question came up when I invited questions, um, a couple other strategies that I have used. Um, one is to make the minority language kind of um, to make sure that there are happy associations with it and that mm. that it be a sort of secret language for myself and my children to some extent. Um, and my children have as they've gotten older, they've kind of referenced this, that it feels like their they're special language with me. And I remember a time when my first son was maybe around eight or nine years old, and he had a friend over, and the friend only spoke English. And still, I would stay in the channel of French with my son, and then English with his friend. And I accidentally addressed my son in English, and he just stopped in his tracks and looked at me like I had betrayed him. Mm. How could I be speaking that language um, with him? And I I think that that kind of uh, trying to make it a special loving connection with the child has been something that has helped our children to continue to speak the minority language even when even when they've gotten a little bit older. Oh, I agree, because I think you've gone to the heart of the matter. They are really about language and emotion and language and relationship. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes I think, you know, in the world of, let's say, speech and language therapy, anyway, we can kind of forget that what is the purpose of language. So like if, for example, you're telling somebody to drop a language, you're going, but that interrupts the relationship because mm-hmm. or like, let's say if you can communicate intense emotion with that nuance in only one language then if you're dropping that language you've cut off a whole like realm of the person's life that's yeah. unjustifiable right right and you know and that that's another that's another aspect for me of the opal approach um this this sense that when you start when you form a friendship with someone or a relationship with someone in a language it can feel awkward to switch languages. Um, mm. There's kind of, I, I, I feel like there's a slightly different, maybe even personality or way of speaking and relating to someone. And if we've ar- always related in one language and suddenly we switch, it feels awkward. Absolutely. Or I just think back to myself and the baby talk. I just could not do it uh-huh. in Irish. it would have felt unnatural and if I like it would have it would have interfered and maybe not significant no not significantly but it just wouldn't have felt my interaction with my baby would not have felt right to me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if I had tried to do it you know what I mean I just knew no I can't do it and but I can really connect and feel I'm connecting in English and I think that's really important it's about initially that connection is really crucial yeah yeah you know well, so let's talk a little bit more about children learning a language that's not spoken in the home, uh, a third language. Um, you you talked about your daughter's passion for Russian, and you and I met actually because of our daughter's shared passion for learning the Russian language. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is relevant to a lot of people because while many families have the good fortune of 
already having more than one language, one native language, um, or being able to speak a second language fluently, or living in a, a multilingual community, a lot of parents may find themselves in the situation of being monolingual and yet wanting to give their children access to a second language or children who are interested in learning another language. Maybe it would be helpful to hear suggestions for supporting their children in learning a second or third language fluently, even though neither parent speaks that language. What suggestions mm. do you have for families like that? And what are the learning tools that have worked best in your experience? So I would say, like, practically speaking, the like doing it as a family or doing it together, like learning when Eva started, my daughter started learning Russian first. Like she brought me for Christmas a mug with the alphabet on it. Uh-huh. And I managed to get to a point where I could do some fairly basic dictation. So she would dictate and I was able to write down what I was hearing now. I have to say I failed miserably. <laughs> so maybe I'm not the best. My advice here mightn't be that credible. Um, but I think, like I did make an effort to learn it. So uh-huh. I think, you know, the, the child seeing the parent making the effort and the child being in the role of the teacher to the mm-hmm. parent, I think is really nice. And seeing the parent struggle and find something hard to do and how do they cope with that and how do they navigate like the uh, attaining kind of proficiency at it. Right. Um, do you know? So, and again, I think like the practical things, like I know like Duolingo isn't perfect, but like the quiz element of that, I enjoyed myself. I did some Italian during lockdown and I really enjoy that kind of the motivation of getting to the end of the lesson. Yeah. And, how many lessons could I complete and, you know, moving up the ranks. Uh Um, So I think like, and we'll say in relation to my daughter and the Russian, like we really were enthusiastic about her learning it. So we really supported her to learn it in terms of finding like a teacher online, finding a local, you know, opportunities, um, talking to her about what she learned. So again, having those conversations, those kind of meta conversations about, um the language mm-hmm. and then if you can of course like you said about when you're in california and with the french can uh, if you can organize opportunities for the child to get to use the language meaningfully mm-hmm. right um, again it so much depends on individual circumstances but there are so many opportunities i think like i have a colleague uh, nadia herkner who's a, a speech and language therapist in milan and she speaks German and she runs like groups on Zoom for like five or six maybe children together who are speaking German and live around the world. Mm-hmm. So where they live in places where German is the minority language and they do they do like a world newsletter and they do all sorts of lovely like yeah. language building activities. So something like that. The Internet has really opened things up, I think, from that point of view of connecting across the globe. Absolutely. And like our daughters enjoyed um, conversation classes online with a Russian, a native Russian speaker and teacher who facilitated conversation between them and taught them songs. And they had the chance to interact together, but also get some instruction and support from a native speaker. Absolutely. And like songs, I think, are a good way because you get a sense of the rhythm. You know, it's like what motivates the individual child as well. Mm-hmm. If they like kind of, you know, the music or the singing, then songs can be a good way to kind of to get to grips with maybe the um, pronunciation, some simple grammar. Yeah. And I think, yeah, having the conversations about, well, how does it work in, let's say, Russian or how do you say that in Russian? Or is there an mm-hmm. equivalent expression? 
for that in Russian, for example. So those conversations, I think, are good too. Yeah. So in our family's case, we had the opportunity to spend a year traveling in Latin America, and we made it a family project to learn Spanish as a third language together. Mm. And so when you're talking about parents showing um, the value of another language by also putting in the effort to learn it, um, that worked really well for us. And it was great fun. I just really love being in the position of learning together, exploring together with my children. Um, and we experimented with a number of ways to learn Spanish. We tried all kinds of things over the course of the year. We did a family immersion experience where we lived in a village with where people only spoke Spanish. Um, I tried just kind of playground exposure. My kids were still in elementary school age. So I thought maybe just being going to playgrounds and interacting with local kids would would help. And that didn't pan out so well. Um, we tried because they were shy. Um, we tried enrolling them in bilingual elementary school where there was some English, but also half of the day was only in Spanish. Um, mm -hmm. Just plunging them in. We tried group language lessons like classes. We tried semi-private lessons for our kids just together. Um, mm -hmm. But what really worked the best in our case was where we had private one-on-one -on -one language lessons where each of our children got to build a relationship. So this kind of goes mm -hmm. back to what you were saying earlier about that human connection mm -hmm. where they didn't necessarily have strict instruction, but it was more like um, my son who was nine or 10 at the time would play chess with his Spanish teacher and they would chit chat while they were playing chess or our youngest at the time who was three um, did fun projects with his teacher and she sometimes brought her daughter and they would interact in Spanish and um, just play games and have fun. And those, that one-on-one -on -one experience really fueled their learning of the language very quickly. And I think that just, you know, brings to mind a point that although we are kind of wired to acquire languages, just because it's kind of natural doesn't mean it's easy or effortless or that it's quick. Yes. So like from listening to you there and going, yeah, if you, you need, there's, you have to think maybe depending on your situation about how are you going to create the opportunities or find the opportunities and that language development takes a long time mm -hmm. so you know for example if a child goes to school let's say they have one language at home and then they go to school in a second language that it can take you know so that you can think about it they can learn to have a conversation and to manage kind of social situations quickly enough mm -hmm. but to get the language of let's say you know the vocabulary for science or history or geography uh, and the grammar for that kind of what's expected that takes a lot longer that takes you know several years mm -hmm. um, and that sometimes what can happen is that the child from the teacher's point of view looks quite adept I, I'm thinking of English now here because of being in Ireland mm -hmm. uh, because if you only ask yes no questions and they can answer yes no questions you can kind of think oh god their English is very good mm -hmm. um, because you're focusing on that social communication aspect of the language as opposed to the more academic. So if they're going to school in another language, there's that to bear in mind as well, but it takes time. Right. And and also, as you mentioned earlier, it 
it's so individual. So what oh, yeah. what works for one child or one parent might not work for another. And so really trying out different approaches and people learn in different ways, whether Absolutely. auditory or visual or kinetic. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. And like, I think the beauty of that really is, and I'm thinking from speech and language therapy point of view is because each situation is individual and unique it means that what we do must match the kind of individuality of each family that we're meeting Mm -hmm. so you're tailoring things to the needs of the people you're meeting there isn't like a kind of a one size fits all Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so I also wanted to ask you about storytelling and its relationship to language you have some really interesting articles on your website on Talk Nua where you mentioned storytelling as an element of language assessment and also as a mechanism for learning language. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the role of storytelling in language acquisition? Sure. So one of the challenges in speech and language therapy where we're working with multilingual children is we don't have enough like resources to assess all of their languages. Um, And there is this project called MAIN, which stands for Multilingual Assessment Instrument for Narratives. And it began um, by a woman, Natalia Gagarina and colleagues based in Berlin. And they have devised this um, language assessment of stories uh, Mm -hmm. for multilingual children. And it's available in, I think it's close to 70 or more languages um, at this point. And I'm working on a project where we have adapted it for the Irish language. Uh And the idea is that so when we think of stories, there are kind of two elements we can think of. And one is what's called like the macro structure. And that's the big elements. So like the setting, where it took place, who was involved, how do they feel? What's the problem? Um, And that uh, those elements of stories aren't affected by the amount of exposure the child has. Because it's kind of like it's like a universal structure that everyone has around kind of what makes a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's and that is so we're looking for like a less biased way of assessing their language. Um, and then the, the other element is where you can look at the grammar. That's called the microstructure. But microstructure is affected by the child's exposure, how much time they've been exposed to English or Irish or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we want to work out, have they got a problem? If they've got a problem with the big elements, then they definitely have a language issue. Yeah. Um, so, but one thing, and I was talking to the, another researcher about this this morning, one challenge with that approach is it doesn't look at why do children tell stories? Mm-hmm. So they might be able to perform on this task or they might not perform well on this task in the clinic but yet they can come home and tell a story about something that happened to them in school that was important and they can tell it with meaning and feeling, but the language testing doesn't take that into consideration. So it's very hard to actually devise a meaningful language assessment. Interesting. Um, Yeah. But to go back to the stories, like, so basically storytelling can begin when a child has maybe single words or maybe two words. And I'll just give you the example of my daughter when we were going to visit my parents and when she was about 18 months and the journey involves going through a tunnel under a river. Mm-hmm. And we did, this is her first time going through it, I think, or the first time she was aware and she really wasn't happy about it. <laughs> and um, she was crying or whatever. And then we came back home. So we'd obviously gone through the tunnel twice 
And I always remember this. Um, she was lying on the bed and I was changing her nappy and she said to me, Tummel, all gone. And of oh. course, I know the speech and language therapist and he was like, oh my God, it's her first story. Um, oh. And it was so communicative. So the yeah. role of the parent then or the adult is to build on that. So I went, that's right. We went through the tunnel. You really didn't like it. Uh-huh. And now the tunnel all gone. And gave her the words to fill out that story. Exactly. Yeah. And all she had there was like two, because all gone counts as kind of one word. Yeah. Two words. That's and amazing. It the world of information. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, this reminds me a little bit of our travel blogging. Um, mm-hmm. When we set out on our world schooling adventure with our kids who were at the time two, six, and eight years old, I had this grand plan that they were going to keep travel journals. And even if it was just um, pick drawing pictures, um, I thought, you know, this will be a great way to kind of keep up a little bit of light academics or, you know, activities that are a little bit school related and they can reflect on their journey and, and, um, and then also have a souvenir. Mm. But the experience was really frustrating. And I realized that there's so much involved in travel journaling, um, even if it's just pictures, because as you say, there's the macro level of the structure of the story and then it going all the way down to the micro level. So for them, they had to think about what had happened that day and remember something that they would like to tell a story about. They had to then kind of figure out what context would be necessary to explain that story and then um, figure out the language that they would want to use to describe it. And then there was the physical act initially of trying to write that story out. And it was very difficult for them to do all of that. So Mm. we ended up, I tried decoupling all of those and I ended up taking dictation from them and asking Mm. them to just think about what happened today and just talk. And I would type and, and really try to capture their their language and the col- the color of their language and the way that they express themselves and just take um, faithful dictation. And it ended up being a really powerful tool for building their language on, on both that macro and micro level, where we could kind of talk about the story they could share and then and then we could look together at what they had said and figure out how to maybe craft it in a way that would enable their friends to read what ended up being a blog that they would keep with my help. Oh, that's wonderful. Like it's such an example of like, you know, meaningful conversation mm-hmm. and the co-construction of something. And also makes me think of this kind of idea that we talk about in speech and language therapy as well is about demands and capacities. So mm-hmm. the de- when the demands, and th- this is important for, let's say if you see the child making what looks like a mistake um, and I just again, I'll give you an example from my own daughter when she was uh, they had to, they were given a word and they had to put the word into a sentence in Irish and write out the sentence. Mm-hmm. So the word, uh, let's say the word was skirta, which is skirt, and mm-hmm. her sentence in Irish was Tommy egg wearing skirta. So she and I think it's just such a cute example because it shows that she had the correct. The slots were correct for the grammar of Irish. Mm-hmm. 
but the demands of the task involved remembering you know a capital letter at the start of your sentence mm-hmm. keep all your letters the same size have a space between each word yes. remember the full stop at the end what is a skirta what's a good sentence right so like something has to give yes so the irish went and but she had the correct verb ending for uh-huh for wear so it's the present continuous and in English that's wearing mm-hmm. and that was co- it was all correct mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying but it was like the, d- the demands of the task were just too much too much at once at once and like by your decoupling there that's like a perfect kind of stepping down of an activity isn't it to a, mm-hmm. a point where it the the demands are reduced so the capacity then can shine through Right, exactly. And over time, it gave us the opportunity to delve into some of those grammatical questions and the more niggling details, but they were more open to it because they got to express the story they wanted to tell um, and then work on the details as we moved forward. And it was also like with a functional kind of goal in mind. So like, writing a sentence like putting the word you know skirt into a sentence isn't really that functional mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying it's like it's a task to complete an exercise yes. actually writing a story just brings some the meaning is important there and the purpose of telling the story makes it a more motivating kind of real world activity I think right which goes right back to what we were talking about in the beginning when you said you know language is about function it's about need to communicate and so creating opportunities and and need to communicate in other languages or facilitate absolutely yeah and doing that yeah exactly and that that can be challenging for parents and you know at times like frustrating and difficult like but that it is worth it in the long term and it's like anything else in a way where you're trying out different things to see what will kind of stick or what will mm-hmm. appeal Because let's say, for example, you know, I've been reading to my daughter since she was, uh, you know, a couple of months old, like looking at pictures and, you know, talking about books and everything. And she while we have a great time reading together, like I read to her every evening, Mm -hmm. she's not really that interested in reading herself. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that kind of I was sad, but (laughs) for a long time going, oh, my God. But then, you know, during lockdown. She discovered Heidi that I had when I was a child. Yeah. She woke up half the night reading it. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Black Beauty. And it was like, oh, but that phase. So things yeah. come and go. Yeah. You know, that fast. Um, so it's a long journey, I think, is my point, really. And not to despair. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> keep trying different things and see what, see what they grab onto. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mary Pat, for joining me on this journey of exploration of language. And it's been really valuable hearing your insights and your experience and having your expertise as a linguist and a speech and language therapist, as well as a professor. And I hope that the Taranga Tribune audience will take the opportunity to go and visit your website, TalkNua. It's Talk. T-A-L-K-N-U-A dot com to explore more of your research and articles and language related support. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me, Micah. I've really enjoyed the chat and I love hearing about your experience as well. Thank you. And I hope we'll have the opportunity to meet in Russia or Latin America or Ireland or France one of these days and, exactly. and test out our languages and exchange some more. Exactly. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. Well, to the listeners, I hope you'll subscribe to the Taranga Tribune for more travel and world schooling inspiration. Thanks so much.